ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon. I'm Selena Green with you for The Country Hour today. Good to have your company. Coming up, harvest. It's about to get underway in the Riverland, but there's some big concerns about the future of the wine industry. So in a moment, I'm going to cross to a gathering of producers that's actually underway as we speak. But first up today, and speaking of harvests, you may remember one of the hot issues heading into the summer grain harvest was whether or not there would be any changes to the measurement of the grassland fire danger index used by grain producers. After some intense lobbying by Grain Producers SA, a proposed change to the measurement by the CFS was dropped and farmers were able to continue using the previous method. During that debate, Grain Producers surveyed nearly 400 of their members for their views on the proposal and now some of those results have this week been released and they showed that some Grain Producers were also CFS members and volunteers would leave the service if any changes went ahead. So maybe wondering, well, why are these results coming out now? It seems the issue isn't as dead and buried as grain producers South Australia would like, despite pretty much the harvest drawing to a close. Joining me today is Brad Perry, who's the CEO of Grain Producers South Australia. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Selena. So we are we're coming towards the end of harvest for pretty much everybody now. Obviously, a lot of people have already wrapped up with the uh, code as it has been implemented throughout this summer. Um, sort of how things generally gone? Has it made it a workable system? Have you been many aware of many incidents? Yeah, as you'd know, Selena, um, after advocacy from GBSA and, and grain producers on, on this issue, we were able to uh, keep current practice on the uh, grain housing code Cease harvest threshold um, this harvest, and uh, everything's gone gone pretty well um, as far as I understand. Uh, at, we're in an industry where um, there's always going to be some fire risk because we're uh, harvesting in in dry conditions. Often, you know, we've got lentils and those sort of things. So, you know, there's always going to be those risks. But um, you know, our, our grain producers are doing everything they can to to prevent a fire happening, and, and when they are happening, they're prepared with uh, with farm firefighting units and and many other um, ways to try and get the fires out. So I, I do understand there were some, some header fires and machinery fires, but uh, they were put out very quickly thanks to CFS and, uh, and local farmer efforts. And in the meantime, that this has allowed people to continue harvesting through, through many days throughout the summer? Oh, that's right. In fact, um, there were a couple of instances... Uh, during this harvest period where uh, we knew that the, the weather was coming. So based on our, our system, which is um, where grain producers measure very locally on their farm, uh, they were able to actually, uh, you know, get some harvesting done before that, that weather hit, um, you know, whether that was warm or, or stormy conditions that, that may have caused some fire risk. They were able to actually safely harvest up until that and then stop whereas uh, many of the other um, codes of practice that have operated across Australia would have meant that the whole day was cut out. So you can see the impact it would have if, if we do um, ever decide to change current practice here, and, and that's what we're going to continue to, advoca- uh, to be advocating for no matter what um, you know, CFS 
says, we're going to continue just to remind them that, uh, you know, get that message loud and clear that current practice works. We've got the best uh, adherence to um, this code in, in the country, I think, and uh, we need to keep it that way. Well, while negotiations were going on last year, you did do a survey of a lot of your members around their attitudes to the potential change and, and how they felt about it, and you released some of the findings of, of that survey. That goes to my question of, you know, why now? It seems that um, grain producers, you got what you wanted for this season, so why are you still pushing this? Is it something that you consider isn't, isn't quite settled as an issue that may be up again for discussion in years to come? Oh, that's right. Look, I think if we look at experience over the last couple of years, uh, as much as I'd love to just take um, the word of, of the department and the, the senior sources in a, in the department, um, I just don't trust um, that we're uh, going to continue uh, this well into the future. I, it depends really on, I think, um, who's in the department and we know the personnel change and, and governments change. So for us, we need to just keep getting the message out that Current practice is working and here are the risks if we change anything. Um, it's critical and it's a, a huge issue for grain producers that we do continue to, uh, to be able to harvest um, as we do now. So we know that personnel change in departments. We know that the governments can change as well and ministers can change. So for us, we just need to keep drumming that message home loud and clear. Here's the data. Here's the evidence as to why we need to continue current practice. Um, and that's why we've released the survey results. You know, at the moment, we've been working with um, the CFS and the Minister for Emergency Services. Um, you know, the Minister for Emergency Services has been very understanding and, uh, and excellent around this issue. Um, but we need to continue to drum home that message loud and clear that if, if anyone wants to propose or try and make any changes to this, here is what they're actually putting at risk. They're putting uh, lives at risk. It seems that they also may be putting membership of the CFS at risk because it looks from the survey that a lot of your members are also CFS members uh, and, and quite a few of them have made some very strong comments about if there was a change to the, to the measurement, the index, that they would reconsider that membership. I think one of the biggest issues, Selena, that we were facing was that there were a lot of assumptions being made um, about uh, harvesting about what grain producers do on farm when it comes to fire safety. So that's why we need to do this survey. We did it in August, September when we were facing a, a proposal of, uh, of measuring a 10-metre height instead of uh, a 2-metre working height. So we actually had a huge response really for, um, for our, our traditional surveys. We got 376 grain producers filled out the survey. Uh, what we were able to ascertain from that was 86% said they measure uh, wind speed under the, the harvest code at, at two metres. So um, only 3% were measuring it at 10 metres. So it's, a, you know, the, it's evidence that the uh, majority are measuring at that two metre height and have been for many years. Um, and not only that, we also had, um, you know, 60% of those said they're actually CFS volunteers. And I think that's where a lot of the anger came through in the survey. And we wanted to to get that message loud and clear through to the powers that be that, look, if you do make a change, um, you know, you're going to impact your, your volunteer numbers potentially and that's actually going to have more risk than what you're proposing. So, um, yes, it, it's a question of, of timing for sure, but I think from GPSA's point of view, this is, even if we've got the result we want, this is not an issue that we're just going to let slide. We're going to continue to advocate on it and continue to make sure that whoever's in power at whatever level they know the evidence, the data, and uh, know that we will not be negotiating on this uh, anymore. 
Brad Perry, thanks for joining us on The Country Hour. Thanks, Lena. Brad Perry, the CEO of Grain Producers South Australia. I did seek a response from the Country Fire Service and received this statement from a CFS spokesperson, which reads... We value our partnership with grain producers of South Australia and the CFS remains committed to working with GPSA and our members to ensure the right balance between productivity and community safety is maintained. And the statement goes on to say there are no plans to review the Grain Harvest Code of Practice. It's 13 minutes past 12. This summer, have a safe one by learning your ABCs. A is for action plan. Having an action plan means you know what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. B is for be safe. Be aware of the hazards you may face in the local area. C is for connect. Connect to abc.net.au slash emergency for the latest emergency information. During an emergency, listen to your local ABC radio station. ABC Radio is your emergency broadcaster. Well, wine grape growers in the Riverland have gathered today to share their frustrations and worries as this year's harvest commences. With no date for return of wine sales to China and low prices for grapes amid a red wine glut, it's a tough vintage for a region that has been under pressure now for a few years. Our reporter Eliza Bellage is there at the gathering. Good afternoon, Eliza. Good afternoon, Selena. I can hear a little bit of background noise. Uh, so obviously there is quite a few folks there. How big is the turnout today? Oh, look, Selena, they were hoping to get hundreds of people here, but there could be close to 100 uh, wine grape growers from the Riverland. It certainly is the biggest turnout of wine grape growers that I've ever seen at a Riverland event. So obviously a lot of people are very passionate and concerned about this issue and want to come together and show their people power. It's just been a stream of people coming past me, just like the Murray River flow. Give us an idea of what the growers are talking about today. Yes, so today they're describing, uh, one of the organisers of the event is describing the situation uh, for wine grapes in the Riverland as catastrophic. Uh, It has been in crisis mode for years and, you know, for the last few decades there has been many issues with oversupply and um, unsustainable prices for wine grapes. But at the moment there is no final price for wine grapes for CCW, um, CCW Cooperative, uh, which supplies to Accolade, which is the biggest um, employer of wine grape growers here. So that's been huge. Uh, and, you know, coming into harvest, it'd be like, you know, starting a job and not knowing what you're going to get paid. Mm. So, it's yeah, people are really, really worried about their future. It certainly does sound like a, a concerning and, and quite stressful uh, situation for everyone involved. So what is everyone hoping to achieve by coming together today? Yes, so people are really hoping that by banding together, they can push back against some of the market forces and try to get a bit more fairness, um, a bit more fairness and equity for the work that they put into growing and supplying wine grapes. Um, They really want people to know their plight and the difficulties they face. Wine grape growers have spoken to me about being um, scared to voice their concerns for, you know, want of being possibly bullied um, or intimidated by some of the um, big wine grape companies that they supply and they feel like if they get together in you know again with the power of numbers that they can actually push for a bit more change so yeah I think that they're sort of saying you know enough's enough like we could still get into trouble by speaking out about this together but you know we're going to be in catastrophic conditions if we don't say something. Well, it does sound like there's a bit underway behind you, Eliza, and we better let you get back to it so uh, so you can cover it for us. We may hear some more about this um, in, uh, in the coming days. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Selena. 
That's our Riverland Rural Reporter, Eliza Berlage, crossing to us there at the gathering of wine grape growers in the region today. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. This is a question you might have been asking yourself a bit. Why has it been so wet this summer despite the long-term El Nino forecast? Could a volcano which erupted near Tonga be partly responsible for the rain that just keeps on falling? Well, Angus Verley has put some of these questions to Agriculture Victoria seasonal risk agronomist Dale Gray. The El Nino that we have has been has been pretty weak, um, and it's sort of it's breaking down probably at the moment as we expect in autumn. Uh, and then the positive IOD probably hung around a little bit longer up there in the Indian Ocean, but it's pretty much almost cactus as well. And historically, over summer, we would expect both of those phenomena to have pretty limited uh, influence over rainfall, or at least very variable influence. But the one climate driver that we have had that can, in fact, influence summer rain has been quite active, uh, and that's the southern annular mode, that measure of the systems that are spinning around Antarctica. Uh, and it's spent a fair bit of summer in the positive phase, which means that the winds around Antarctica are spinning faster and they're pulling the systems further south. So if people thinking their weather feels like northern New South Wales or Queensland, Angus, that's exactly the case. Those systems have been pulled further south We've been experiencing more tropical and more humid-like weather and quite stormy uh, as well. Now, historically, when we have positive phases of the southern annual mode over summer, we would classically expect the eastern half of Victoria to be wetter, and that's certainly been the case, but it has actually drifted a bit further westward than that as well. So you'd probably say, you know, two-thirds to three-quarters of Victoria have been much wetter Okay, so that's that's what we attribute this wet summer to, that southern annular mode and the effects of it. Yeah, that's right. And it's it's its predictability is not that great out to, you know, a couple of weeks, although it was always going to be an interesting tussle this year. We even though we had an El Nino going over summer, historically that would cause a negative southern annular mode. But we had the hangover from the Tongan volcano eruption from a couple of years ago. Uh, which caused a positive southern annular mode last summer and moderated the weather to a fair bit. And there was always a chance that that could happen again this year. Once we get to autumn, that uh, relationship will break down potentially once again. Uh, and we'll get to our good old autumn time, Angus, where we have all of those climate drivers kind of reverting back to neutral. Well, I'll ask you about the outlook shortly, but just on that Tongan volcano, because I, I see a few references to it, can you just explain how it's possible that that event that was now two years ago is still influencing the climate now? What happened with that uh, volcano was that it put an inordinate large amount of moisture into the upper atmosphere, into the stratosphere water vapour because it was an underwater volcano and it put a heap of steam essentially up into the atmosphere. That moisture got down to Antarctica and changed the way that the circumpolar vortex, the, you know, the winds that are spinning around Antarctica, uh, changed the way that worked. Um, and that has hung around, well, it was, it was there last year uh, and it's seasonally based. It's not something that's necessarily there acting all the time but it potentially has its greatest ability to move things uh, over summer by, you know, speeding up those winds around Antarctica uh, and causing, yes, that positive phase of things where basically you need to understand is that it, it pulls things further south. I suppose the million dollar question would be, can it do it again next year? Oh, I don't think anyone knows that. Okay, so back to the outlook that you started to touch on before. What's going to drive the climate in the months ahead and what's your best uh, guess on, on what we'll see in terms of rainfall? 
Well, the, the climate models at this time of the year are really they're predicting that El Nino to break down in um, in autumn, and that's completely normal when we'd expect it to do that. We expect the Pacific Ocean to revert back to neutrality, uh, and then we see some interesting divergence from the models. A, a lot of models are just sitting on the fence with the Pacific Ocean behaving itself normally. Uh, and we see three models that I look at, and particularly North American models, are predicting the Pacific Ocean to go into some sort of cooler phase. And a number of those start to look a bit uh, La Nina-ish like, or in fact are in fact La Nina. So it's very early days for that prediction. There is so much water to go under the bridge, Angus, uh, literally, and so much random sort of weather that would need to occur for that to happen. You know, we need to be mindful that predictions by climate models made in autumn are notoriously unreliable, I guess, unfortunately. So does that then mean, Dale, as we approach sowing time and people start to think about their their cropping programs, does that mean you you should only base your decisions on on the conditions before you, that subsoil moisture you've already got, as you mentioned, rather than trying to to guess what the season will do and base your uh, rotations on that? I get very worried, Angus, when people are making um, management decisions at planting time on the basis of forecast because for every time they can get it right, they can get it wrong. So it's it's really a mixed bag. And, and you're exactly right. You're much better to be making decisions at that time of the year on the known knowns, of which soil moisture is one of them. It really is a case of going with what you know at that time of the year rather than going with the climate forecasts until those climate forecasts you know are at a time of the year that they can be more reliable which is which is winter and spring and just finally dale in general terms is long-term forecasting getting better or is it struggling to keep up with climate variability it's interesting because maybe uh Four, five, six years ago, uh, climate model people, farmers were telling me that other models getting better, Dale, because they were getting things right. But just in the last three years, the La Ninas that sort of have been developing and then sort of developing quite late, uh, all the negative IOD, some of those in 2022, that wetter season uh, was well predicted, you know, pretty much nailed it by just about every model in the world. But occasionally we get years where models struggle and, and last year was one of those. And some years, of course, we get times where the models are just sitting on the fence saying we don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, often that's, you know, half the time uh, where, you know, the Pacific and Indian Oceans are behaving themselves completely normally and the climate drivers that are going to be affecting us are the things that are more local to Australia. And so once we get to autumn, that's often the case. It's more the local things that are going to affect us. And at the moment, locally, we have some incredibly warm ocean off to the east coast of Australia. Uh, and we've just generally got warmer to normal ocean everywhere around us to the north. So our there's nothing busted with our moisture sources, Angus. There's there's warmth in the ocean to our north and it's capable of evaporating a heap of moisture. Uh, we're seeing cyclone development and as we come into autumn, cyclone breakdown often brings rain and moisture down to us and can often kick off the autumn break if you get the right sort of ducks uh, lining up. So it, it's kind of as we come into autumn at the moment, we, what we see locally around us uh, is nothing really broken about uh, not getting some rainfall in autumn at the moment anyway. 
That's Dale Gray. He's a senior seasonal risk agronomist working with Agriculture Victoria, and he was speaking there to Angus Verley. Right now, you're on the South Australian Country Hour, and you're with Selena Green. It's 24 minutes past 12. Let's head to the Weather Bureau. Simon Kin- Timkey is our forecaster today. Hello, Simon. G'day, Selena. No sign of rain out my window today. Uh, any chance of it anywhere across South Australia? Not really today, no. No, I think we've got dry conditions right across the state and decreasing amounts of cloud during the morning too with the high pressure ridge over waters to the south there directing south to southeasterly winds over the state. We did see quite a bit of low cloud about coastal districts this morning but now that the sun's been up for quite a while and things are warming up, most of that has, has cleared away or at least contracted to uh, the, the very coastal fringe. So plenty of sunshine now. Also out in the far west there is a, a little bit of middle and high level cloud but not expecting any weather out of that either. So should be dry right across the state today. I think very slight risk of maybe a shower or thunderstorm in the very far northwest corner, very far northeast corner, but uh, very, very small part of the state uh, to, to have that chance, I think. Um, plenty of sunshine too. Most of the state uh, bathed in, uh, in sunshine today. And we're likely to see pretty similar conditions Wednesday, Thursday and Friday uh, as that high pressure ridge um, really doesn't move much over those few days. So we'll see some some pretty fresh sea breezes each afternoon, possibly even reaching uh, strong winds. So we do have a strong wind warning out for Spencer Gulf and Gulf St Vincent today for for some locally strong sea breezes with uh, uh, the uh, during the afternoon and, and very early part of the evening. Um, but but uh, other than that, just generally uh, um, fresh and gusty south to southeasterly winds a, a, a little bit at times. Over the weekend, though, things will change a bit. We'll see that high-pressure ridge become a little bit mobile and move uh, move eastwards during Saturday. So we'll see our winds tend around northeasterly on Saturday, uh, conditions getting a little bit warmer. But the wind's generally fairly light as that high moves right over the top of the south of the state. Um, the, the winds won't be too strong. Uh, it might see a, a little bit of sea breeze near the coast too, but not as strong as, as Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Uh, and then on Sunday, we'll see those winds tend around northwesterly and, and increase a bit, and conditions generally hot to very hot throughout, I think, for Sunday. Um, and we'll see, uh, with those winds and the higher temperatures, we'll see elevated fire dangers. Uh, I expect we'll probably see a few districts uh, um, get into extreme fire danger for, for Sunday. So keep an eye out for those warnings and associated fire bans as we get closer to the day. Uh, and then we'll see a, a fresh and gusty southwesterly change move across the west and the south of the state on Sunday, um, bringing cooler conditions. Chance of a shower about southern coastal districts on Sunday uh, and then on Monday as that change extends further inland uh, a a chance of a shower too um, about western and southern parts of the state on Monday probably on uh, on Tuesday as well so short term very little in the way of rainfall perhaps just the odd isolated light shower uh, about southern coasts on Wednesday Thursday Friday but wouldn't expect any significant totals um, out of those maybe one to two millimetres if you're if you're lucky so generally dry dry conditions are ahead of that change on Sunday so uh, as a result those um Rainfall totals for the four days out to uh, the end of Saturday, very uh, very little to speak mm-hmm. of there, just that less than two millimetres near southern coast if we do happen to see the uh, the odd light shower about the place, Selena. All right, and as you say, we'll keep an eye, things could be interesting by Sunday, certainly something to keep an eye on. 
That's right. I think I think out of the next week or so, Sunday is sort of the interesting day with those uh, higher temperatures, windier conditions, and then the the, the increase in, uh, in in fire danger as a, as a result of that. Thanks, Simon. Great. Thanks, Selena. Simon Timkey there from the Weather Bureau. Looking at the forecast for the western inland parts of New South Wales, for tomorrow, the upper western district, a mostly sunny day with a slight chance of a shower in the northeast, near zero chance elsewhere. There is a chance of a thunderstorm in the far east. South to southeasterly winds, 25 to 35 k's an hour, becoming southerlies, 30 to 45 k's an hour throughout the morning. Overnight, temperatures getting down to between 22 to 27 degrees. In the day, they'll reach up to between 36 to 41 a sunny day for the lower western district with southerly winds 20 to 30 kilometres per hour, increasing to around 25 to 35 k's an hour in the morning. Overnight temperatures falling between 15 and 22 degrees, with daytime temperatures reaching 32 to 37 degrees. It's coming up to half past 12 here on the Country Hour in this next half an hour. Uh, why we should be protecting and fencing off some of our waterholes and swimming holes on your property and getting ready for the China wine market to reopen. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Good afternoon. Great to be with you. Now, do you have a favourite swimming hole or billabong or whatever you call it? Maybe you've got some fond memories of jumping in to cool off on hot summer days or catching yabbies. Often they're overlooked, though, when it comes to land management. So you'll learn a bit more about how important these permanent waterholes are and what we can all be doing to help protect them. And get yourself ready for a brand new grape variety. Apparently has been years in the making. Well, how long have scientists been working on bringing you this new variety? Well, they've been doing it since this was a number one song. That song is older than you think. It's a long time to be working on a project and to see something come to fruition, so we'll learn a bit more about that. This is all after the headlines, though. So now we cross to Chris McLaughlin. He has them for you. Good afternoon, Chris. Hello, Selena. An Adelaide magistrate has lifted an identity suppression on a man who allegedly murdered his wife and shot his daughter at their Campbelltown home in July last year. Vasilis Vergoulis can now be identified as the man who fatally shot his wife, Alexandra Vergoulis, and shot his daughter, Daniela, who survived the incident. The federal government's reacted cautiously to security negotiations between China and Papua New Guinea. PNG's foreign minister says Beijing has offered additional police and security assistance. Australia signed a major security agreement with PNG last year. Wine export workshops are underway in the Barossa Valley to help grape growers understand the Chinese export market. About 200 businesses will join workshops across SA's wine regions in preparation for the possible lifting of China's prohibitive Australian wine tariffs. A group of birdwatchers reported a surprise encounter with a king penguin on the Kurong. King penguins normally only inhabit Antarctica and the sub-Antarctic islands, but a group of birdwatchers doing a survey was approached by a king penguin at a beach north of Kingston South East last week. More ABC News at one o'clock.
Thank you, Chris. Chris McLaughlin, yeah, and I have seen some images of that penguin. Very cute little fella. Looks a little bit lost, though. Uh, now, there's still no confirmation of a date when wine exporters can expect tariffs on Australian products into China to be lifted, but that isn't stopping the industry from preparing and getting ready for when and if it happens. A series of workshops, as you just heard, are being held across South Australia. There's one in the Barossa today. Kunawara was on the cards yesterday, and they're about helping prime exporters on what to expect if trade reopens. Chief Executive of the South Australian Wine Industry Association, Inca Lee, says it's important for exporters to be proactive ahead of any changes. So today's about sharing the latest insights on the China market. So there are tariffs still in place on Australian wine heading into China, but with the Chinese government reviewing those tariffs, it's pertinent for wine exporters in South Australia to be informed and have the latest information to hand on the Chinese market. And how much will things have changed in that time for the wine exporters and and sellers and makers? Look, there's been significant changes. We've had COVID. There's been a lot of disruptions to the global wine world. Um, So today is about sharing macroeconomics in China, um, about the Chinese consumer, about sales channels, and how new requirements have been put in place for South Australian exporters. When it comes to wine, have trends and kind of the demand within China changed at all? Do we have much information about that? Yes, certainly the the demand is changing. But interestingly, that demand was shifting prior to COVID and prior to the tariffs. So today we want to share new information around the Chinese consumer. We do know, though, that there is a deep impression that Australian wine has made on the Chinese consumer. And that sentiment hasn't really changed with the imposition of tariffs. So that's good news uh, for the Australian wine industry and the South Australian wine industry. But going back into China, if tariffs are reviewed and there is a lifting, uh, it's very important for businesses to understand how they can now re-engage in that market. Yeah, I was going to ask, so Australian wine does mean, the word Australian does mean something still in China? Look, it does. Uh, Chinese consumers are after quality products, pure products and premium products and South Australian wine offers all of that. We have beautiful landscapes, uh, we have quality product, so those those essential ingredients that the Chinese consumer are looking for and desire are, are represented in our South Australian wines. Will it be a more competitive market? Are we expecting there than before? Well, certainly. Um, not being in the market means that other countries of origins are now on the shelf in, in greater amounts. So Chilean, Argentinian, Spanish, French wines are there. So certainly the challenge for South Australian uh, wine exporters if we can re-enter the Chinese market in time, will be to create that relationship again with the Chinese consumer, uh, show them our amazing premium products and then start to trade in. And that's achievable? Yes, it is. It is. Certainly the the Chinese market uh, into the future will provide an opportunity for South Australian wine again and each business needs to assess that opportunity and how it fits with their business model. And we're here today in Coonawarra at the first of these workshops and they're also going to be at the Barossa, the Riverland and Adelaide Hills. Is the advice going to be similar? Is there any difference between these regions of how they need to be thinking, hopefully before these tariffs are lifted? Yeah, no, certainly the information that we're sharing amongst all those um, well, across South Australia is the same. It's a, it's a consistent message around what the Chinese market can hold for South Australian exporters into the future. So 
we do we will be sharing with South Australian exporters though that we need to be very mindful that the Chinese government is going through the review process of the tariffs. We're positive, but we're not presumptuous. So we are very mindful that there is a process still in play. But this is just about informing South Australian exporters of the latest information. And similarly to, I guess, any regional differences, are there any differences in advice for small versus larger winery operations? Look, certainly that probably applies to how they put their wine into market and their relationship with their importers and distributors in the Chinese market. That will certainly vary for small versus larger larger businesses who have an established footprint. And there's been a lot of interest in these workshops, a good amount of registrations and people keen to come along? Yes, there, there has been and different across different regions as people we know that they're all heading into vintage at the moment the Riverland has has commenced so uh, we've been really buoyed by the interest in the workshops which shows that people have an enduring um, interest in the China market and what that may offer them in the future. Inka Lee there, the Chief Executive of the South Australian Wine Industry Association, speaking with Elsie Adamo. And, yeah, as you heard, more of the workshops will be held this week. The Barossa, Riverland and Adelaide Hills are still to come. So if you're interested in attending any of these events or you want more information, you can head to the association's website, which is winesa.asn.au. It's 23 minutes to one. Maybe you've got some fond memories of jumping into a local swimming hole or billabong to cool off on a hot summer's day or maybe catching yabbies there as a kid. If you've got one of these deep pools on your property, well, lucky you. But it might not be the top of your priority list when it comes to land management. My next guest is keen to highlight the importance of these types of permanent waterholes and how you can help protect them. Will Hannaford is a Senior Stewardship Officer with Landscape Hills and Flurio. Good afternoon, Will, and welcome to the Country Hour. Thanks, Selena. Now, the type of waterways we're talking about today, uh, these waterholes and uh, deep pools, these are, we're not talking about uh, wetlands or things that sort of pop up in the middle of winter or we've had a lot of rainfall about. These are the ones that are more permanent that uh, people might see on their properties full almost all year round? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, permanent pools or I guess most people might know them as waterholes or even billabongs. They are found within uh, creek lines and the important thing about them is that they do retain their water for all or or most of the year Um, and therefore that they can sustain life for nature um, through the hottest and driest months of the year. And given that we have had uh, some boosts in some areas of some some summer rain, some of these might be uh, looking quite healthy in terms of their water levels at the moment? Yeah, look, it's, it's amazing, amazing, you know, this, this year, it's amazing what it does to nature. These sort of wet, wet summer years are really critical to recharge uh, not only waterholes, but, but sort of the whole, the whole landscape. And you often get um, new, you know, red gums or other, other gum trees sort of coming up in years like this. And in terms of the waterholes, it's, it's critical for maintaining that water level and even um, flushing and keeping that, that water fresh to enable things like um, the native fish, the galaxiids, to have a, a better chance of um, surviving the year and populating and, and um, really rejuvenating their, their populations. Mm. So where are you most like or what type of properties are you most likely to, to find these on? Obviously they need something to feed them, so perhaps if you've got a creek nearby or some sort of waterway that would be feeding into these holes? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean you know, water holes are found throughout Australia. Um, for some listeners have been lucky enough to travel to northern Australia, that's, you know, they've, they would have had some awesome experiences in the water holes in, in northern Australia. Some of those are pretty large and spectacular. But in South Australia, we've, we've also got water holes. Um, in, in the past, some people would have heard of chains of ponds, and, and chain of ponds in, in the Adelaide Hills is, is a place where there was um, sort of numerous water holes down the Torrens. But um, across the Adelaide Hills and Flurio and other regions um, where there are creeks, there's, there's always water holes. Some of them are, are pretty small, um, but if, if they do uh, retain their water, they're still really critical. And we're talking today because you're really keen to highlight the importance of, of protecting these uh, these water holes. Why? What what kind of value and benefit do they bring to the landscape? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're not only valuable to nature, but they're valuable to us as well. Um, you know, we, we love being near water and some of our fondest memories are, are near water. Think of the beach or the river. And some people um, would have enjoyed water holes, you know, travelling to friends' properties and, and um, swimming or looking for yabbies or, you know, even property owners really appreciate them because you know, it's, it's a really good way to, to recharge and get a good dose of, of nature. So for us and for native species that have adapted um, to the, the water holes, you know, beyond the native fish, the, you know, the rarer sensitive plants, all sorts of birds, not only just water birds, um, down to the smallest creatures like, you know, the macro invertebrates like dragonfly larvae, larvae and even insect pollinators that are criti- critically important for, for agriculture rely on, on these water holes. I understand after the uh, the Cudley Creek fires, there was a, a bit of work done around the water holes in that area to help uh, re-establish and, and help them bounce back and, and what these are, are quite often one of the first parts of the landscape to bounce back after a fire? Yeah, they can be. I mean, they, they can be impacted quite negatively by bushfire. Um, after, after fire, there's, there's nothing in the landscape to hold the soil together. And, you know, and, and often you do get summer rains after a bushfire. So you get a lot of sedimentation. Sometimes these water holes will, will fill up with a lot of ash and sediment. And unless they're flushed out properly, that's an issue. But in terms of across much of South Australia, the grazing landscape, it's really important that these pools are, are protected because when there's after fire, well, you know, most of the fences go. And if, if they were protected by fencing before the fire, then livestock are attracted to these areas because often they're the first things where you get the green pick. And there can be, you know, a lot of damage after fires. So fencing and and steel fencing that doesn't burn in fires or, um, you know, avoiding the the green posts, the CCA posts that burn very quickly, um, is really important to protect these areas. And I know often there's a last last sort of priority in terms of fencing, but, um, you know, more and more people are, are really valuing the benefits nature brings them. So um, we're really encouraging people to really think about fencing off their creek lines and, and importantly, these, these permanent pools. Yeah, so if these pools are where there are, you know, in an area shared with livestock, why is it important to, to fence those livestock out of that, that pool? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, these pools, um, 
you know, over over the millions of years, they they weren't adapted to the the hard hoof heavy animals um, that that sheep and cattle and horses are. So they they can just get really impacted, and they're they're quite sensitive areas. So what what happens? You get uh, animals moving, you know, uh, across where you get a ro- across the banks, and you, you get erosion. You get a lot of their their waste, you know, going into the the creek, and often you'll just cows actually just just standing in the the, the water holes on hot days so that they can really impact the vegetation the soil you know erosion and also the, the quality of the water in that water hole so if you're a fish living in there uh, suddenly things can change very quickly when when livestock get into these areas one of the other tips you've shared is to consider reticulating water perhaps from your dam into these waterways yeah, well, I mean, I guess some people might might wonder dams and and creeks and waterholes. What's what's really the the relationship? Um, in in many areas, we we settle the land and we naturally we we put in uh, dams and lots of dams across across the landscape. But unfortunately, now um, there's so much water that's caught in these dams that the creeks and particularly these permanent pools are really suffering because. The, the rain will come down and it'll start flowing in late autumn into early winter, but all that, you know, a big proportion of that water is actually just going into dams. It's actually not getting, you know, flowing down the creek and flowing into the waterhole. So thinking about your dam, I mean, a lot of people need all the water in their dam and that's, that's fine, but if, you, if you've got a dam and you don't actually need it all, you don't use it all, um, thinking about getting it out down the creek... Um, and protecting that creek and uh, making it into a really important asset on your property for nature and for you to enjoy um, is, is a really good idea. And there's some simple um, siphoning systems that, that you can set up, don't cost a lot of money, that can do that. And often there's pumps on dams that can be utilised for that purpose. So there are some resources out there if um, landholders, property managers are, are keen to look at ways of protecting some of these water pools? Definitely, yeah, yeah. Um, contact your landscape board, your local landscape board, and uh, you just need to Google Landscapes SA and um, you'll, you'll find plenty of resources actually online, but also, you know, the numbers that you can call and, and you can get the, the advice that you need to really build a, and protect a really important asset on your property. Will Hannaford, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. My pleasure. Thank you. Will Hannaford is a Senior Stewardship Officer with the Landscape Hills and Flurio. It's just going on 13 minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. You're with Selena Green today. Well, how long have you waited for a project that you've worked on to come to fruition? Could you imagine waiting more than 20 years? Well, this month, the dried fruit industry is celebrating the launch of a new grape variety, which began development way back in 1999. Longer than you think then. The variety has been given the name Sunbold, and Dried Fruits Association Chairman Mark King says he's hoping this new variety will deliver higher yields and address issues with rot and mould that have been long plaguing the traditional Sultana variety. So those old Sultanas, they just weren't, well, I'm going to say they weren't developed, but they... They were all that was available when they were planted many years ago. They just can't handle the rain. And, of course, hate to say climate change, but 
it's changing. We're getting more rain periods and what have you. So DFA, um, that's an industry, is trying to encourage growers to change over to those new varieties. Best risk management they can have. They can spread their harvest over a long period because instead of it all coming in in a mad week in February or mad three or four weeks, you can start at the end of January and you'll finish at the end of February. Your staff, you might only need half the amount of staff. Can you give me a bit of a picture of the dried fruit industry at the moment? How many people are planting vines at the moment for dried fruit production? At the moment, there's about 250 growers in the dried fruit industry. We have lost a lot of the smaller growers. Retirement, you know, they've just sold. Often the neighbours have brought the properties. We've got growers now that have bigger areas and we've got corporates that have come in too. But we do the vine counts. We've had a lot more vines go in in the last three or four years than we ever had before or going back to the 90s in your age. And are you hoping that a new variety like this one might encourage more growers to get back into the market? Oh, I hope it does. I mean, there are other new varieties out there, but this one here, if they... Well, we had 50-odd people turn up here today, which was really good. And obviously the, um, they're keen to see what the new variety is. CSIRO Honorary Fellow Peter Klingeleffer was involved in the development of the Sunbold variety more than two decades ago. By our breeding standards, it's quite short, but by other standards, it's quite long. The cross was made in 1999. The seedling from that cross would have been planted in 2001 or 2002. For dried fruit growers, the launch of the new variety is bittersweet. Sunbold represents one of the last new varieties that are likely to come out of a CSIRO breeding program that is now no longer producing new crosses for dried grapes, table grapes or citrus. CSIRO Crops Program Research Director Dr Anne Ray says CSIRO has redirected its plant breeding program to focus on wine grapes, cereal crops and pulses. So we've had long-standing programs in, in citrus development, table grapes and dried grape breeding. The work is evolving now, so we're no longer making new crosses in our breeding work, but we are still evaluating the advanced selections that have come from those crosses. So we still have a large number of selections which could be potential varieties, and we're continuing the work to evaluate those to see which ones have the best commercial potential as new varieties. And what's the reason for not making any new, new lines? It's some decisions, I guess, about support for that work. So the work that we do in breeding any type of crop is generally supported and often by industry funding. If that industry funding isn't available, then we're shifting that work into the next stage, taking that forwards to look for ways of, of using the material that we've already generated and getting products out of that. So it's really about where the industry support is coming from and which stage of that breeding pipeline we are focusing on at the moment. But who, who will be taking over that work of generating new crosses in the future? I, I don't know the answer to that. I think that's something that the industry needs to, um, to look at and evaluate where the opportunities can come from. We know that there are other, other breeding companies with an interest in delivering varieties for Australia. So, for instance, the, 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 the company that we're partnering with for the citrus varieties is, is able to access a wider variety of, of material which would come to Australia and benefit the selections that are available here. So there are other people who have an interest in doing that work. It's not, it's not only CSIRO who's able to deliver that, but we're interested in partnering opportunities. That decision that we would, we would move from the initial crossing into the evaluation was made quite a number of years ago. This is something which has been in, in, in process for quite a long time now. That was CSIRO Research Director Dr Anne Ray and she was ending that report from Elsie Kennedy. 
Have you got a piece of furniture using or a piece of timber furniture that you've purchased for your home? Do you have any idea where that timber has come from? Was it imported timber? And if so, how can you be confident that the timber has been sustainably harvested without illegally decimating ecosystems in developing countries? That's a very good question. Well, a two-year trial of new techniques to combat illegal logging will wind up this year. It's been investigating the use of new technology to determine the species and or the origin of imported timber. Kieran Andrews-Go is the Federal Department of Agriculture's Director of International Forest Policy. Illegal logging is a widespread problem. Interpol in 2016 estimated that it costs communities around the world, US, 50 to $150 billion. And that's including impacts to local communities, to governments from lost revenue and to others along the supply chain. So it is highly significant. It costs the environment as well. The costs to the environment are estimated to be up to US, $900 billion a year. So in terms of social costs and environmental costs, they're right across the board. And it's not something that can be easily repaired either when you think of those ecosystems. Certainly a restoration can be challenging with illegal logging because of the impacts. Illegal logging typically isn't done under the same strict controls that sustainable and legal forestry is. So of course you have elements like soil erosion impacts on the biodiversity that potentially long-lasting. Illegal log timber is estimated to represent up to 15 to 30 percent of global forest products trade and it has impacts on the prices of sustainable log timber, depressing prices from 7 to 16 percent. Here in Australia, how much of a problem do we have with illegal logging within the country? Essentially within Australia, we're not looking at the same sort of scales that we see overseas, which is really where our laws are targeted. They can be isolated cases, which are typically handled under state legislation. And there's been cases with Sandalwood in Western Australia, for example, in recent years. But in terms of worldwide, where we see the biggest illegal logging impacts, it's concentrated in areas where there's still large areas of tropical forest in developing countries, Southeast Asia, Africa, South America. It really comes down to the local communities and the laws in place in those areas. Is much of this timber actually making it to Australia? So there was analysis done in 2010 which estimated that up to 10% of timber entering Australia may have been illegally logged. We've commissioned analysis in subsequent years to that and with the illegal logging laws we've seen that reduced by a couple of percent. However that is hard to put a figure on because it does require quite complex tracing back and to the best of our knowledge there is still on international markets substantial amounts of illegally logged timber. From what I've been reading Australia has been lagging behind countries such as the United States and the European Union in terms of the technologies that we use to identify identify illegally logged timber. So what's being done to bring us up to speed? So the Australian government was one of the first internationally to bring in illegal logging laws requiring those checks on supply chains. Australia is really looking now to learn from what other countries have introduced in order to help with identifying legally logged timber coming into the country. We're currently undertaking trials, purchasing retail timber products and sending them off to labs both in Australia and overseas to identify whether or not the products are what they're being claimed to be on shelves. The intent of this is to understand the strengths and weaknesses of the many different timber testing technologies out there at present.
present and we're trialing a couple of timber testing technologies and approaches right now. So currently we have a up to $4.4 million timber identification budget measure, which is looking to basically sample timber and then test it with laboratories around the world that offer services where they can take a sample of timber, analyze it for its chemical or DNA structure, and then identify where it was logged and what species it was. So this is aimed at improving the traceability of timber. So it gives us the ability as the government to take timber products and see whether or not claims that are being made about them, their origin and their species are accurate, and where they are to work with the importers and retailers that are bringing those into the country that have obligations under our legal logging laws to improve their practices. And what sorts of advancements have been made with that testing technology? Testing technologies have come a long way. Within Australia, we have a couple of service providers. We have those offering technologies that involve DNA analysis, which have been used for prosecutions overseas. We also have another entity involved in trace element analysis. And then there's others that are across a wide range of chemical compositions and different approaches, including handheld tools. So those have really substantially increased their coverage in recent years. And the Australian government is looking to support that increase and expand into key timbers coming into Australia with a $1.2 million grant that is to the World Forest ID Consortium, who will add to their collection geo-reference samples from around the Asia-Pacific that will enable us to now go to labs and be able to test timber and get a more accurate identification for key species within Australia or coming into Australia. Have many people been fined for importing illegally logged timber and timber that doesn't meet these requirements of traceability? So within Australia, we have not fined anyone for importing illegally logged timber. However, there have been fines issued. There are around a dozen fines issued or infringement notices for importing timber without having adequately undertaken due diligence or supply chain checks to ensure that that was not illegally logged. That was Kieran Andrusko. He is the Federal Department of Agriculture's Director of International Forest Policy, and he was there speaking with Jennifer Nichols. But don't forget, if you want to catch up on any of the latest rural news and uh, read some great online stories that the team has been putting together for you, you can head to the website abc.net.au forward slash rural, and there's plenty of reading material to keep you busy on there. Uh, plenty coming up on the afternoon show. Nikolai Balharts will be with you this afternoon. Hello, Nikolai. Good afternoon. What have you got for us today? Uh, well, um, uh, uh, there, there are a lot of kind of dieting. I don't know if you'd call them fads or crazes. Mm-hmm. Um, intermittent fasting has been one that's been around for a little while now where you, well, you don't eat for a while. Um, Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, it's being reported that he fasts for 36 hours every week. So Ooh. starting at 5 o'clock on a Sunday to 5am, 5pm on a Sunday to 5am on a Tuesday, only water and tea or black coffee is, is all he has. Um, I don't know that I could... <laughs> That doesn't sound like fun. It doesn't sound like like fun. And if you're in a position of power, like holding the the office of Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, when I get um, hungry, sometimes I get a little bit grumpy. Hangry. Hangry. Get a little case of... You can't be running a country while you're hangry. Well, there's a bit of pressure, isn't there? So we're going to delve into that world this afternoon of... Um, you know, on, on, on appearances, it seems a little bit extreme, but are there positives to it? We'll try and find out about them and... Maybe are there a few drawbacks as well, like 
getting a little bit grumpy if you've got a, a meeting with the You're going to have to really sell this to me. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's an uphill battle. Don't worry. I feel the same. <laughs> Thanks, Nicola. Have a great show. Thank you. Nicola Bellharts, he'll be with you this afternoon for his program and he'll have those stories and a lot, lot more. I'll catch you same time tomorrow. It's time for the 1 o'clock news. Lend us your ears. Download the ABC Listen app and find all our audio in one handy place. Tap on the ABC radio icon and go to our station page. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.